now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In the fifth episode of our R&D season, Just Science speaks with Dr. Jamie Wheeland and Dr. Christopher Mulligan of Illinois State University about assessing the impact of implementing portable mass spectrometers for on-site drug evidence processing. Listen along as Just Science explores cross-disciplinary research to determine the analytical, legal, and fiscal impacts of adopting drug screening protocols using portable mass spectrometers in the field. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host. I'm with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, funded by the National Institute of Justice. This is our season following up on the Research and Development Symposium from the American Academy of Forensic Science, giving folks a little bit of perspective on some of the uh, presentations that were held there. If you weren't able to make AAFS, or even if you were, and we'd like to hear a little bit more about some of the really interesting research that's going on that's relevant to forensic laboratories. Before I begin, let me make sure to encourage you, if you listen to Just Science, make sure to tell all of your friends and neighbors and colleagues and, and whomever about Just Science, get them listening, and make sure to subscribe and give us all sorts of thumbs up on whatever avenue you happen to be accessing us through. Today, we have with us two guests from Illinois State University uh, looking at the assessing the impact of implementing portable mass spectrometers for on-site drug evidence processing. With us is Dr. Jamie Whelan. Dr. Whelan is an assistant professor in the Department of Management and Quantitative Methods at Illinois State University. And that's really interesting. So, uh, Jamie, tell me, management and quantitative methods, by that you mean quantitative methods as applied to understanding best practices in management and finance? Is that what that means? Primarily. So most of the faculty and quantitative methods within the department are, are interested in business applications, but um, it can be very broadly defined, such as the work I'm doing here, just in, in a general organizational context or systems context as well. But yeah, primarily quantitative modeling, statistical applications, and computational work. Excellent. Dr. Leland obtained her PhD in industrial engineering from Purdue University and has a BS in industrial engineering and management science from Northwestern. And her current research involves, as we're about to talk about, assessing the operational and economic impact of portable technologies for on-site analysis of forensic evidence during crime scene investigation. Our other guest is Dr. Christopher Mulligan, also with Illinois State University. He also got his PhD in, but in analytical chemistry from Purdue University. And he develops portable instrument-based solutions for forensic environmental monitoring applications, including the current project, which is looking at portable mass spec systems using ambient ionization sources for crime scene and law enforcement applications. Chris and I, before we started the podcast, we're doing a little old home week because the regular listeners would know I'm an old mass spec fan. I used to work in the area back when I did real science back in the 1990s and applying it to chemical biological defense and one of the icons of the uh, application of mass spectrometry and chemical biological detection is Graham Cooks out of Purdue University. And you actually did a little bit of work with that group uh, when you were at Purdue. Is that right, Chris? That's right. My doctoral work was 
developing miniature and portable mass spectrometers for a variety of applications. And what I've been able to do with my own research group here at Illinois State University is really push that into the civilian sector, specifically uh, forensic analysis. That's fantastic. So uh, both our guests are from Purdue and have moved on to Illinois State University, so they certainly have pedigree, that's for sure. And I used to work with time of flight in space. I guess Graham Cooks wasn't necessarily a time of flight guy, I guess. That's true. Uh, so he's kind of known as one of the big proponents of ion trap technology, particularly um, these simplified geometries. So not to get too specific on it, he's he's essentially kind of perfected the idea of making ion trap mass spectrometers to be very simply machined, so you can make them kind of in-house and also have them be very high performance. One of the the really interesting thing about ion traps is that they work better at higher pressure. So when you get to the idea of portable instruments, you know, vacuum systems, power supplies, all those things are really the enemy of, of portability, and ion traps are, are well-suited for that application. And you're using, in fact, a uh, FLIR system cylindrical ion trap mass spec for this project, which is uh, really interesting. Did Graham have some impact on the design of that? I, I thought that he worked with FLIR for a while. Uh, yeah, so there is a uh, quite a history there. So the cylindrical ion trap obviously came from the Cooks group, you know, the idea of portable mass spectrometers also. So I think if you could apply that kind of lineage to this device, it's, it definitely has its roots from Purdue and, and Cooks group. Okay, well, I'm going to say that Catherine Fenstall and, and Bob Cotter would probably say that they had some pedigree with respect to the idea of portable mass spectrometry. I have to do that oh, as an old Hopkins guy. I have to have to push back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> there's there's a whole lot of uh very, very uh very, very smart people working towards the same application area. That's that's for sure. So all that's fantastic. So the money for that came out of the Cambio area. That's really exciting to see. Uh one of the things that we like to uh, highlight sometimes is the fact that the DOD is developing all this technology and putting a lot of money into it. And, and here's a great example of how the forensic science community uh, may be able to take advantage of that investment to uh, Im- improve some of the things that it's doing as well. That's right. There's quite a bit of parallel between security, military um, applications, and the forensic sector. You know, not only the chemicals of interest that you might want to detect, but also the environments that you might want to do analysis in. So, you know, the idea of ruggedized portable systems, I mean, that plays well, very well in the, the defense sector, but also in terms of this idea of crime scene investigation and forensic analysis in the field. Let's talk a little bit before we get into some of the meat of the project. How did, Jamie, uh, how did you and Chris start working together in it's very unusual because what you normally see is you'll see somebody who is like Chris or, or me. Was, we just love technology. We love engineering it. And we're just looking for some place where we can plug it in. <laughs> but you're all actually looking at a much much broader kind of set of ideas with respect to kind of assessing this. So how did you all kind of formulate this here, Jamie, in terms of how that worked? Yeah, well, um, to tell you a little bit um, more about my background. So my background is actually in engineering. My PhD is in industrial engineering and systems modeling. And so before I was in the Department of Management here at Illinois State University, I worked um, in the Department of Technology in the College of Applied Sciences and Technology. And so that kind of broadened my horizons on, you know, interdisciplinary research opportunities across campus. We have another colleague that's not with us today, but he's on this grant as well, um, Dr. Michael Gizzi. He's in the Department of Criminal Justice here at Illinois State University. So I was colleagues with him um, when I worked in the Applied Sciences College here on campus. And so this has been a project that we've been working on for several years and and has been, um, you know, in the making or in the works for a while. 
And we were just really connected across campus with interdisciplinary research opportunities. That's one of the goals of Illinois State University, and they do spend a lot of time and effort giving um, faculty resources to make connections across campus. So it's really interesting. Now, there are some people who are using other modalities, anything from colorimetric tests to Raman spectroscopy and, and that kind of thing, to kind of go after this field identification of drugs issue. So from your perspective, how are you examining the economic impacts sort of broadly? How are you approaching this problem so that you're, because there's multiple kinds of, of ways that you can attack this problem operationally. So is there a methodology for taking that apart? That's kind of an industrial engineering or systems engineering problem, isn't it? Certainly, yeah. And actually, um, some of the technologies that you just mentioned, you know, including the color tests, color field tests, and, and Raman, those are things that we are looking at as well in the current grant. And then we have a, a future grant that um, just started with NIJ this past January. And so this is a very broad um, analysis that I've been working on. So it's not just um, necessarily this specific instrument, but also coupling this instrument with other things like color tests and ramen as well. And so we're really developing some comprehensive models in terms of the cost effectiveness overall of these varying technologies. Okay. So Chris, I guess I'm going to turn back to you then, because the other mm-hmm. issue isn't just within the what's being used on the field. The other issue is what the different instrumentation possibilities are. And I know that you have to be an ion trap fan, um, and uh, the atmospheric ionization issue is really good mm-hmm. there. But there are other approaches. People have been looking at darts and things like that for sure. similar kinds of mass spec applications. So technically, how does what you're doing kind of stack up against these other options? That's a really good question, and it really is a golden question. There's uh, many ways to uh, make an omelet, if you will, in terms of which portable technology, if you will, will actually stick in terms of fulfilling this application of broad forensic evidence screening in the field. And there's a lot of main players out there, and there's been uh, technologies that actually kind of came to the table before us. So you mentioned portable Raman devices. You can take that back to portable GCMS as well, which is really kind of considered the gold standard technique for forensic drug analysis. And I think what's really important in the lineage of these devices is where did they excel and where did they fall short of this kind of holy grail of drug evidence on site that is also court admissible. And we've, as much as possible, tried to look at those successes and those drawbacks, if you will, and try to mitigate that with our strategies for these new technologies that we are focusing on. And that's where this idea of you know, mass spectrometry, which is well regarded on its sensitivity and selectivity, but make it portable, but at the same time, make sure that you don't lose that performance along the way of this portability. So that's where the performance aspect comes in. But you also need that ease of use as you know, Raman, Raman laser technologies, where you just pretty much shoot it and collect data, if you will, and also, you know, simple color tests. So how can you combine these two fields together into a technology that is going to be usable by the forensic practitioner, which is guaranteed not to have a PhD in science? And this is where this idea of portable systems, mass spectrometers, and ambient ionization, which is highly regarded for its simplicity. You know, the directions we've been taking the ambient mass spec realm in terms of the spray-based devices, or essentially those that our solvent-based for analyses, like paper spray ionization, is just really one flavor of these ambient techniques. You mentioned DART or direct analysis in real time. That's highly regarded in the forensic community as well, and arguably is used more in the actual laboratory setting for forensic investigation. That very well could be a solution as well. It's really what what is the combination of ionization source 
simplified methods for use and instrument, the mass spectrometer aspect of it, that will match together to give you exactly what you want. And those are some of the questions that we are you know, really taking the time to answer. Not only can you build these cool devices, but how well are they going to work? And how well are they going to work for you long term? So error rate, things like that. Not necessarily the coolest experiments in terms of literature, but ones that are very, very necessary in determining whether this type of technology can have long-term success. I'm going to draw from both the FTCOE's work. Uh, we uh, have certainly tried to do some evaluation work with the DART in, uh, mm-hmm. in yeah. police departments and run into some issues there. They really boil down in some degree to the idea of just anything involving a vacuum system. And I know that right. ion trap systems are a little bit, don't need quite as much a high vacuum as some of the other things, but it's still a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And right. that's a real challenge operationally for these systems. And is that something that you're taking a look at in terms of how to actually make that reliable enough in the field? Or do you think FLIR has solved those problems in their system? I guess I would say yes and yes. In terms of you know portable, especially anything that's vacuum system-based in terms of portable instruments, the two main questions that, that come about are what's the power requirement and how rugged is it? So if you have these especially turbomolecular type pumps, which are really reduced-sized jet engines that are just primed to shred themselves apart if you do something wrong. Can you make that actually ruggedized to where if it's operating in very humid conditions or if you're jostling the system while it's working or if you have these power spikes because of dirty power in the field, how well are those going to survive those types of things? And I think one of the things that that FLIR has done that has really been helpful for us is a lot of those specific questions were answered when they were targeting these military-type applications. To pass military specification, a lot of these questions were asked, and they were determined, and they were refined. So the idea of a ruggedized system, they really have produced a really nice product from the ruggedization standpoint. But you're you're very much right. When you are taking these modern technologies, these high-performance technologies, and making them field portable, there are always going to be these situations that you need to be very mindful of. So when you develop your standard methods, if you will, for the training aspect, there are going to be things that really stand out as being important that you get across. So, Jamie, is there a way from an operational perspective or a systems perspective to kind of understand the reliability issue when you're actually doing something that different? In other words, Raman obviously has none of that issue. Right, but these systems do, and is, is that something that can be brought into the analysis with respect to its fiscal viability as an alternative to forensic practice? Certainly. So each of these technologies um, has a different set of pros and cons, drawbacks and advantages, of course, and so. The vacuum issue that you guys are talking about with um, this specific technology, Raman, you know, faces other drawbacks. You're really getting towards the, the crux of this argument, like which one's going to work at the end of the day? I think one of the, the interesting aspects of this, like Dr. Whelan said, is that while you don't have to worry about vacuum systems, you do have to worry about laser systems and safety with that, and you also have to worry about using it correctly so that you can get viable data from your sample. So it's kind of a yin and yang. While we are more concerned from the instrumental standpoint for ramen in the field, fuel portable ramen, to be effective, you have to be very much mindful about how you're implementing your sample analysis. Yeah, so one of the other issues with ramen is that in the portable systems, it's really, really hard to get high resolution, and I've mm. never believed the false positive, false negatives were really as good as advertised. You know, and that's where authentic scenarios, I think, really offers, you know, the data that we need. So there is, you know, performance in regards to standards that you might make, and then there's performance in real scenarios. And the interesting 
aspect about this proposed idea of field investigation of, if we say, drug samples, it's not necessarily just you know, field-based evidence, which obviously is not pure. There's several cutting agents, and it could be presented in several different mediums, if you will, several different types of paraphernalia. There's also different users. So not only do you have a, a difference in sample, you also have a difference in user, a difference in training, a, different, a difference in expertise, and honestly, a difference in their overall capability. You know, if you make that akin to titrations back in general chemistry, not all titrators are created equal. In terms of just your own, you know, your own methodology and, and how well you are with hand-eye coordination, et cetera. And all of those things really come into this idea of overall error rate. It's not just what the system can do. It's how well can said user use said system in terms of that error rate. When we've investigated this idea of false positive, false negatives, et cetera, not only are we considering what the instrument can do in, in ideal situations, but how can users of different educational backgrounds, different expertise levels, how does that uh, affect our error rates as well? So one of the other issues here is that you all have been looking at the legal investigative strategies and the application of portable mass spec systems, and also looking at it relative to things like thermal imaging uh, and mm -hmm. contraband screening and other kinds of frameworks. Tell me, how does that relate to kind of these issues in terms of the trade-offs with the uh, mass spec units for controlled substance detection? The way that we've kind of looked at this, and, and I would be remiss not to mention that the faculty member or the investigator that really has spearheaded the uh, legality aspects of this project, Dr. Michael Gizzi and the Department of Criminal Justice Sciences here at ISU, is to really look at situations where new technologies were brought along, how well it performed in terms of what it can do, but more importantly, how was it handled and how was it discussed in the, those very first pinnacle court cases that involves said technology. So you mentioned the idea of thermal imaging and uh, you know the first investigation using thermal imaging to look at uh, hydroponic marijuana grow operations. You know the capability of going through and looking through someone's walls with thermal imaging to to see these types of grow lamp situations. While that offers a really interesting investigative strategy, there are privacy concerns that come along with that. There's really similarities in what that kind of framework was to things that you could use with said portable mass spectrometer that we've been developing. So if you have this performance and you have the ease of use and you have it at the scene of a potential crime, in what ways can this be used very effectively? And in what other situations could this actually be used in a way that is infringing on someone's rights? So this idea of legality of use, we've really tried to, to investigate that. And you know, in certain scenarios, particularly like traffic stops. So, you know, everyone everyone enjoys a certain right to privacy in their own vehicle. Um, and there are situations where forensic technologies can be used to establish probable cause to search a vehicle. The most common is uh, the canine unit. We essentially looked at situations where you could use portable mass spectrometry to gain similar aspects of probable cause. And going through kind of the case law, particularly the, the, the canine case law and its jurisprudence and the capabilities of mass spectrometers to be used similarly. Sure, sure. Well, yeah, it's basically not quite as good as the dog's nose, but a lot more easy to quantitate your, your confidence intervals, that's for sure. That's right. Uh, so it's, uh, <laughs> like I said, kind of, like kind of before, it's the give and take. Uh, while we can, we can really process that information, we have an exact idea of how well this can work and in what situations it can work. It's just not as good as you know, our biological detector, if you will, the, the dog. But I think what can be afforded is, is that ingenuity of the, the officer on site. So if you have a piece of 
evidence, if you will, that prior to this technology, you wouldn't have taken the time to send off to the crime lab or you wouldn't have given it a second thought. You can now do broad chemical screening from surfaces. So the idea of looking at someone's door handle or looking at their identification that they give to the officer, does that offer a route for investigation? And also, secondarily, is that actually an infringement on rights? These are the types of things we're trying to work out ahead of time to essentially work out as many kinks as possible so that this actually looks like it's financially viable, the science is there. Does this actually make sense for broad implementation? Out of all of this, we can actually develop a couple of different scenarios for the application of the mass spec systems. And then you actually have gone one step further in terms of developing a financial model of the of a deployment. Can you talk to that a little bit in terms of what you developed and how it's applied in this area? Yes. So um, we were developing fiscal impact models to look at the cost savings associated with portable mass spectrometry technologies um, used in the field and then alone independently or combined with other technologies such as color test and ramen as well. And we looked across the whole process in terms of costs associated, operational costs, things like instrument transportation costs, on-site costs. And so if we're actually doing the analyses on-site, you know, breaking that down and looking at what that would cost at the precinct. And so, you know, if you have handling there, or maybe in some cases, such as vice operations, you may want to be doing your analyses at the precinct for undercover reasons and whatnot, you wouldn't, you know, actually have the screening going on site. Evidence transportation costs, so there's large potential savings there just with logistics and raw transportation costs, and then in lab costs. And so we we broke that down across all phases of the process to kind of compare and contrast um, across different usage modes. I know one of the things that we uh, have looked at on the podcast and also under the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence is the uh, financial modeling and data that's being done under the Foresight Project. And so we're very interested in these kinds of economic considerations. There's only so much money <laughs> to go around <laughs> to do all of this. Um, yes, yeah, we we were able to obtain many of the um, items we needed from um, publicly available data sources. It was actually quite an interesting exercise. So we had not only Dr. Whelan and the students that she's been uh, mentoring with that, we've had some of the chemists over in my group essentially going out and trying to find this information. It really was kind of a, an exercise that is indicative of forensic science in general, which is it's interdisciplinary. You need a whole lot of different types of expertise in order for this kind of arena to work out. So as Dr. Whelan said, you know, finding all the information, even to the level of you know labor, what's cognizant salary and fringe benefits for people that are collecting evidence or doing the, the, the actual analyses in the crime lab. All of these are types of information that we had to track down with either conversations with actual forensic practitioners or what's available on the web. So we've looked at things like uh, the um, you know, national resources in terms of labor statistics. Uh, we've looked at current salaries uh, for chemistry and science and also law enforcement careers. We looked at typical drive time to forensic laboratories. So if you're actually taking your evidence to the, to the crime lab for processing, that needs to be accounted for as well. Because if you're looking at a scenario where you're processing evidence on site, those are some of the things that you can cut out. Really try to incorporate every possible facet that could involve time or money in the processing of drug evidence, whether that is the traditional way of doing it, which is through the, the public crime lab, or via these proposed methods, such as portable instrumentation, uh, and also coupled with um, 
things like color tests and Raman spectroscopy with this idea of, of, of trying to get two-tiered testing in the field as well. So these models that Dr. Whelan has, has really developed are comprehensive, but it allows us to really uh, look at different scenarios. The end goal of this is to make something that works, make something that works from, from the science standpoint, but eventually is going to be court admissible. And whether that is just ambient sampling, portable mass spec, or if that's coupled with something else, or if this is some other technology down the line, this type of financial model that, that Jamie has made is going to allow us to really assess the financial impact. So, Jamie, a lot of the people who listen to the podcast are crime laboratory managers, directors, and people who are responsible for you know these financial decisions, and that's what they care about to some degree. They care about the rigor of everything, of course, as well. But assuming that Chris is able to deploy an instrument that works well, <laughs> is this something that's actually cost-effective? Because any kind of mass spec system is going to be more expensive. So is it possible to cost-effectively deploy a mass spec system in this, in this framework? Surprisingly, yes. And so um, the variables depend on a couple of things that we found were particularly important. One is the idea of how you're using the information. And so right now you have to have a second confirmatory test. So you have to do two different tests with two different technologies to confirm your results of your analyses and then, um, you know, be able to use that evidence in court. So that's the, the standard. And we've shown that by potentially coupling the this technology with another technology such as color tests or ramen, there's even greater cost savings potentially. And so right now in this project, we're looking at just doing one analysis in the field and then still sending it to a laboratory for a secondary analysis. And, you know, surprisingly enough, there are cost savings associated with that. And so the cost savings range from it looks like 5 to 10% to maybe even up to 30% per sample, which is surprisingly um, quite a big number considering the cost of the technology. So basically right now, the tests that are out there are presumptive, but they're not confirmatory. There aren't any confirmatory field tests. So the, the right. basic idea is if you can do the confirmatory test in the field, that these savings mm -hmm. will come about. Is that the bottom line? Oh, no. Just as a presumptive test, we're anticipating cost savings from, you know, 5 to 10% on the low end to maybe as high as 25-30% on the high end. Now, if you are able to couple this technology with another technology on site and do a confirmatory test, we anticipated high or estimated as high as, you know, potentially 50 to 60% cost savings per sample. Okay. You know, the other part of this, and I don't know whether this is another layer of analysis, and that is one of the principles in the criminology is that the more rapid the decision is made, the more effective it is and the less punitive it needs to be. So if you, yep. and right now drug testing in the laboratory can take a while and is very loosely coupled to the legal process in many times. That is another way of making this a more cost-effective. You're getting better results probably with respect to prosecution and enforcement more broadly. Yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, and that's from the aspect of financial viability. You can kind of take that into the next step, which is the kind of cost-benefit aspect. You know, what what are these societal benefits? These costs. What is the investigative benefit? So if you do have the capability of information on the demand, what does that get you? Um, these are some of the aspects that we're interested in looking at in the future. Yeah, right now we were just considering primary operational costs, so just a, a cost savings model. But um, yeah, there's also the more of intangible benefits in terms of trying to put a cost savings associated with that is, for example, what's the um, you know, increase in the opportunity for plea bargaining to have real-time information. 
So are you all anticipating trying to take some of these ideas that you've learned both from the technical development of the instrument as well as the analysis of the legal and, and economic considerations uh, all the way into a field operational demonstration at some point in the near future? Is that something that we can anticipate? Yeah, I mean, we're always interested in, like I said, bringing in that expertise that is needed. And, and eventually, you know, such a technology the real test is in the hands of the people that would be using it. So we take every opportunity as possible to work with local law enforcement, federal agencies, you know, folks affiliated with NIJ, et cetera, to show it in the real world operating, and then also get that feedback from the people that would be using it. And that helps us not only refine our techniques, but also get ideas of the overall impact of such a device. You know, overall, I think you know, it was really mentioned and it's really important is that any instrumental technology is going to be expensive. I mean, when you start thinking about broad deployment of expensive technologies for law enforcement, people naturally get squeamish and that makes a lot of sense. But if you can show that, you know, based off of the volume of drug evidence that really is required for analysis, that even a small amount of savings, if you apply that across the board to all this evidence, that actually starts to build up enough money to where this makes sense from a financial standpoint. And that's where bringing in this, these other expertise, doing these real field scenarios, uh, field implementation, uh, that really is important. We've talked about basically equipment reliability, but there's the other aspect, which is the false positive and negative response as well, basically mm -hmm. looking at the response operating curve. And you've got some data on that, right? Tell me about that. So we were looking at a few different factors in the experiments that we did. So not only were we looking at results across a wide variety of users in terms of education levels, so we had some graduate students, of course, but we also had undergraduate students and then some students that had just graduated um, from high school running experiments for us. And we conducted these experiments across various drugs and then also across various environmental factors as well, um, wind, temperatures, humidity factors, and things like that. And overall, our results were surprisingly robust, and we were able to show that, for example, our detection rate was over 99%, and our false positive rate was right about 0.15% on average. Did that include looking at mixtures? Because uh, there's a lot of unusual mixtures going on out there on the street right now. Right. And that's where, you know, there was the, the kind of preliminary work of showing uh, here's one sample, if you will, uh, relatively representative sample uh, to see what it can do. And then future work will be exactly what you're mentioning. So what if you have something that is street cut and it's at a purity of, you know, less than 5% and the rest of it's broad cutting agents? Uh, what happens if you actually have it in a different format? So tablets versus powders, perhaps, or things that are on blotter paper. These are all in itself a different sample that really should be investigated for its own error rate, given the methodologies that we're developing for the front end, the, the usability aspect of it. And these are all things that we're very much interested in looking at. Well, some of these are really subject to analytical method as well. And can this particular instrument do MSMS or is that it can. It can. So we do all of our uh, our analyte identification via MSMS and also databases. The grant in question to which we're doing these error rates was actually our second grant from NIJ. The first one was really to show that it has the, the capability uh, and analysis of drugs of abuse. And we spent uh, really some exhaustive efforts in databasing, so looking at standards, creating a database of all the known drugs of abuse, but also the new novel psychoactive substances. And then we've allowed ourselves then to use said database 
and use some software processing to do automatic chemical identification with these error rates that we've been looking at. So with these error rates that we've actually assessed are based off of databases that we've created via MSMS. So again, the idea is to make that, you know, the identification as accurate as possible. Well, that's really exciting. I hope some of the crime lab people who are out there get in touch with either uh, you all directly at Illinois State or with the FTCOE because I think this is really exciting and a really unusual kind of approach. Uh, and the fact that you're doing it really looking at, at all the major legs of the problem, uh, I think is going to be uh, critical. And I'm, I'm really excited to see where, where you all's research goes from here. Thanks much. I appreciate that. As I mentioned, you know, forensic science is really interdisciplinary, so we need that broad expertise in these general areas of science and also you know, non-science type areas to really answer the questions that we need to answer prior to this being a technology that can be implemented. We welcome the, the idea of collaboration, and really we have no excuse to not be able to collaborate with anyone because we're portable. If we have a portable system, we should be able to pack it up and take it anywhere we need to, to operate it. So we would love to collaborate broadly across the board. Thank you very much, Dr. Jamie Wheeland and Dr. Chris Mulligan, both with Illinois State University. Thank you for being on Just Science, and we appreciate all the hard work you're doing in the research laboratory and, and also in operationalizing this really exciting technology uh, for drug identification. Thank you for being on, on the program. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Next week, Just Science speaks with Dr. Michael Doc Edge about record linkage of CODIS profiles with SNP genotypes. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. <laughs>